So this morning, um, we have the privilege of hearing from Cameron Dodd. So uh, I chatted with Cameron a little bit about how to introduce her. So I have some goodies for you who might not know Cameron. So Cameron came to know the Lord when she was 20. Um, she was married for 12 years, is mom of four kids, was a missionary in Papua New Guinea, daughter of Diane, and granddaughter of what was Millie. 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 So fun. She has mom and grandma here today. <laughs> and uh, she's been attending GBC since 2004, and she is an incredible encourager. That was not something she told me, but it is true. <laughs> if you've ever had a conversation with Cameron, you walk away feeling very, very encouraged. Um, and your eyes are always focused on the Lord. And so I'm thankful that Cameron is here today to share with us what God's Word has to say. Um, but before Cameron comes up, we are going to go over our disciplines. So let's open up in a word of prayer, and we'll get started. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you for the sunshine and the cool weather. Thank you for reminding us that you are in control of all things from the sun shining, to what it feels like outside, to the plans that you have for us. And God, I just pray that this morning is a time of growth for all of us, that Cameron will speak clearly what you would have her say, what your word has to say, God, and that we would listen um, with humility, knowing that we need to change. Father, I pray for the ladies over in Wellspring Kids, that you would give them a lot of energy this morning, um, and just for a sweet time where your word is proclaimed over there as well. In your name, amen. So, before we get started, um, the lesson that Cameron teach, is teaching this morning is mostly Discipline 1, but we all know we can't have Discipline 1 without 2 and 3, so turn over your notebooks and read the disciplines along with me. <clears throat> Just as a reminder, the purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Discipline one focuses on the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. And then discipline two, the, ho the home, sorry, <clears throat> the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. And discipline three is ministry with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority. The faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And then our Wellspring verse is Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. <clears throat> so advertising is an interesting thing. Do you ever remember when you were a little kid, maybe this was just me, and you were watching a commercial on TV and there was some toy being advertised that before the commercial started, you didn't even know it existed. But now that the commercial is on, you want that toy more than anything in the world. That was me growing up. <laughs> um, that's what advertising is. And you think that they're highlighting this product, right? But what they're really highlighting is our own discontentment and our own pride and our own selfishness and our sin, wanting something we don't have. Uh, in 1974, <clears throat> Burger King started an ad slogan that said, have it your way. They still have that ad slogan. 
Coca-Cola's current ad slogan is open happiness. And one that I know I've shared before here, L'Oreal, the makeup company, has an ad slogan that says, because you're worth it. So that's a lot of lies being told to us by advertising. Um, and we must combat those lies with truth. We don't need any help convincing ourselves of things that aren't true, right? Turn to Mark 7. <clears throat> we'll probably be here soon on Sunday mornings, but right now, Mark 7, and we're going to start reading in verse 21. <clears throat> Mark 7, 21 says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So that is where our sinful thoughts and desires and motives originate in our heart. But we're also bombarded with these outside forces, thank you advertising, that tempt us to be discontent and prideful and selfish. So we have to combat that with God's word. Seeing ourselves for who we truly are, sinners in desperate need of grace, will lead us to only one thing, which is humility. So we can say, sorry, L'Oreal, we're actually not worth it. <laughs> we're not worthy of salvation. We're not lovely. We're worthy of punishment and eternal separation from God. But, 1 Timothy 1.15, I won't make you turn there, I'm just going to read it. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's a pretty far cry from what L'Oreal is trying to get us to believe. So, despite our unworthiness, who we are when we were hating God, he loved us. And that type of humility-fueled thinking creates in our hearts a spirit of meekness. So meekness is not something that's talked about a lot. And actually, when I was preparing this, I was trying to do a lot of research on it. There's not a lot out there, even in like on Google, <laughs> to explain what meekness is. But um, I'm going to try to explain it to you the best that I can. So meekness is a gentle quietness. Meekness is waiting patiently for the Lord. It's trusting in his timing, trusting in his power. A meek woman will be slow to speak, quick to listen. A meek woman is welcoming of correction and patiently endures offenses from others. It's characteristic of a woman who sees herself as an undeserving sinner, and only then can we minister to those in our home and then outside of our home in a way that pleases the Lord. So do we always have to be right? Do we always have to have the last word? Is our opinion ever more than an opinion? Do we look down on others who don't agree with us or think like we do? That's not meekness. And uh, we know that sanctification is a process. And we know uh, that if we desire to be meek women, we have to cultivate that spirit of meekness and gentleness. There's no shortcuts to godliness. We can't put it on like a jacket. It's day in and day out, humbling ourselves and shepherding our hearts. And the first step to ministering in our home with the spirit of meekness is to be honest about where we're not meek. We can't rationalize our behavior, right? By saying, it's just my personality. You know, I'm just, I'm just naturally like this. 
but you don't understand what my husband is like. Or, I'm a firstborn. All firstborns are controlling. We can't excuse our sin, right? If it's sin, we have to call it sin. We have to repent and change. So after we fight to put off our lack of meekness, we need to put on a spirit of gratefulness and of humility and never get over the wonder of where God saved us from. And it's really hard to get offended and bent out of shape over the sins of others when we're seeing our own need through humble eyes. So we can ask God for meekness. We can beg him to change us into the woman or the wife or the mother or the sister or the friend or whatever that we need to be so that we can minister to those in our home faithfully, as our disciplines say, faithfully. And as always, we know that our ability to minister to those in our home starts with our time in God's word. Um, I've shared this quote here before, but I just absolutely love it. And it's a good reminder for me. I think especially in January, a lot of people are starting new reading plans. Um, And so listen to this quote. This is from C.H. Spurgeon. Purge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. That is spending time in God's word. So let's discipline ourselves, use these disciplines to discipline ourselves to not listen to the voices of the world or the voices that are coming from within that say you're worth it or you deserve me time or have it your way. but instead to listen to and read and meditate and memorize the word of God, because that is how we are able to faithfully shepherd our hearts, minister to those in our home, and then minister to others in the church. So that is the disciplines for today. And Cameron is going to come on up and teach us. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I am so happy to be here. In a lot of ways, I feel like Melissa just summed up my lesson, and we can all go home. Just just kidding. Um, We're definitely going to be talking about meekness today. We're going to be talking about what a godly woman looks like in this world. So the title of our lesson today is The Hidden Person of the Heart. And that phrase comes from the middle of the passage that we'll be in today in 1 Peter chapter 3. That word hidden is super helpful. It comes from the Greek word kryptos, which is where we get our English word crypto, as in cryptology, the study of codes, hidden codes. And that word is helpful because it tells us that the most important thing about us as women is not something that anyone else on this earth can see. It is hidden about us. The most important thing about us is something that's hidden, something that only God sees. It is the heart. And we know all about the heart here in Wellspring. We talk about it all year long. Um, our hearts are not hidden from God. Hebrews 4.13 reminds us that no creature is hidden from God's sight. It tells us that his word is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And 1 Samuel 16.7 says that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So the point of this lesson today is what does a godly woman look like biblically? 
That's the question we're going to be asking and, and answering. We want to see ourselves as God sees us. We want to prioritize what God prioritizes. And the emphasis, as we're going to see, is actually on how different the godly woman looks from the world around her in every area of her life. So we're going to be asking, how does a godly woman look different from the world around her? How does a godly woman look different from the world around her? We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, but we're not going to start there. If we start in the middle of the letter, we'll miss the foundation that Peter lays throughout the rest of the letter and the larger context of the book. So if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. This book was written between A.D. 62 and A.D. 65. This would have been about 30 years after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. Peter is still alive. He is the author of this epistle, and he's writing to scattered, suffering believers. Nero would have likely been the emperor of Rome at this time, and if you don't know anything about Nero, he was a brutal, vicious tyrant in his maniacal desire to build and rebuild and keep building. He actually burned the city of Rome to the ground just so that he could rebuild it. And when he encountered the backlash from angry people who had lost their loved ones or their livelihoods, he needed someone to blame and he blamed the Christians. And as a result, there arose this widespread and severe persecution causing Christians to scatter, to flee. And we see this in the first uh, verse of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, in his greeting, he addresses his epistle to the elect exiles of the dispersion, and he lists some places. These Christians have been dispersed, and they are under uh, persecution. They are suffering persecution under unjust authority. And the setting is significant because the people to whom Peter is writing, they're not mighty, and they're not powerful. They're not CEOs or celebrities. That's not his audience. These people are weak. They are powerless. And contrary to our American sentiments, Peter doesn't instruct them to build an army or form a union. He doesn't encourage them to fight for their rights or even to resist the tidal wave of persecution that's headed their way. These people are suffering under unjust authority. And what does Peter instruct them? To live holy lives and submit to that very authority. Live holy lives and submit to that very authority. This goes against every fiber in our American beings. And we have to ask why. Because it is in these things, how Christians live, how they respond to mistreatment, how they respond to unjust authority, that they best reflect the character of God, that they best evangelize a hostile world. It is in how different Christians look from the world around them that draws the eyes of that world to God. The theme of First Peter at large is that the best tool at a Christian's disposal for evangelism is not rebellion, it's not moral compromise, it is holiness of life and submission to authority. As a friend said to me recently, God's ways are counterintuitive. He did not win us by asserting his rights, but by giving them up. He did not save us by threatening our lives, but by laying down his Jesus was meek. He was humble. His whole life was marked by submission to his father, obedience to him, and submitting himself to his father, he submitted himself to every other kind of earthly authority. His parents, his government, even when he was falsely accused and crucified by it, he submitted to it. The point being, Jesus lived a holy, submissive life, pleasing to his father, and that was the means by which God chose to save sinners. And that is still the means by which God saves sinners today. 
by people observing Christians living holy, submissive lives, pleasing God. I want you to see this in the book of 1 Peter. If you look in chapter 2, starting in verse 11, Peter writes this. He He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. It's holiness of life, fighting our sin. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That day of visitation, this is a salvation context. What this means is that these Gentiles would have seen the good deeds of these Christians and they glorify God. They actually get saved. Godly conduct matters because it's evangelism. And what's interesting in the book of 1 Peter is that of the over 70 commands we find in this book, very few have to do with proclaiming truth with our mouths. The vast majority of commands in this epistle have to do with proclaiming truth with our lives. It says to keep your conduct honorable. Well, what does honorable conduct look like for Peter? Well, look at the very next verse. He says in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors, and he goes on. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, to the emperor, and that was Nero. And he does the same thing in the next section as he, as he talks to servants. And he says in verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And he gives a reason for this a few verses later in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We're called to look like Christ, and we do that by living holy lives and submitting to the authority in our lives with all respect. More than our words, our godly conduct has an impact on the unbelievers in our lives. Flip over to chapter 4. Peter's addressing, again, how Christians are to live. And starting in verse 2, he says to live for the rest of the time in the the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And again, that's holiness of life. And then he says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter is clear that the conduct, of, the conduct of believers should be so different from the world around them that it prompts questions. It prompts surprise. It prompts malign, being maligned, being slandered, being reviled. The believer's life is to look totally different from the life of an unbeliever. And this brings us to the first point on your outline. How does a godly woman look different from the world around her? Well, first, her relationship to God's word is different in that she obeys it. Her relationship to God's word is different in that she obeys it. There is a contrast in the book of 1 Peter between obedience and disobedience, between those who obey God's word and those who do not obey God's word. Peter actually describes unbelievers in the book of 1 Peter with this phrase, those who do not obey the word. We see this in chapter 2, verse 8. When talking about those who reject Christ, he says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
And we see it in, four, in chapter 4, verse 17, again, talking about uh, contrasting Christians um, with those who do not obey the gospel of God. And we're going to see it in our passage today with unbelieving husbands, who Peter doesn't describe as unbelievers, he says, even if some do not obey the word. The phrase, do not obey, is actually one word in the Greek. It's apetheo. It's got the idea of obstinance to it. It is, a ref- it is to refuse to be persuaded, to disbelieve willfully or perversely. And this, this obstinance, these obstinate stony hearts of an unbeliever, this is an accurate description of the one who is not saved. They do not obey God's word, and they cannot. Their relationship to God's word is one of hostility indifference, but mostly it's hostility. What is the world's relationship to God's word, to the Bible? I mean, at best, it's, a, it's an ancient philosophical moral book. And at worst, its truths are scoffed at, mocked, despised, rejected, scorned, hated. Does the world view the Bible as being God's authoritative word to mankind? No. Do they submit their lives? Do they run to submit their lives to what this book says? No. Do they obey it? Of course not. Even in the lives of those who would profess to be Christians in this culture, it's evident that whatever being a Christian might mean to them, it does not mean obedience to every word in this book. But believers, Peter says, have a different relationship to God's word. They are marked by obedience. We see this verse in chapter 1 in his greeting. Verse 2, he says he's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion, and then he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And if you skip down to verse 14, he's again talking about believers, and he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. We are obedient children of our Father, and we want to be holy as he is holy. Believers are marked by obedience. Godly women are marked by obedience. But obedience to what? In verse 22 he said, of chapter 1, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And again, in the next verse, he says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. When we get saved, Our obstinate, unbelieving hearts of stone were exchanged for a tender, believing hearts of flesh. That's what Ezekiel 36, 26 tells us. And it was an exchange. Our obstinate, stony, sinful hearts were given to Christ on the cross. And 1 Peter 2, 24 makes this exchange clear. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness By his wounds, you have been healed. We were given new hearts. We were changed from the inside out. And instead of hating God and rebelling against his commands, disobeying the word, we now love him. And as a result, we love his commands. 1 John 5, 3 tells us that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome to a believer. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. By God's grace alone, godly women have become obedient to the truth, to God's word from the heart. And their relationship to God's word is completely different from the world around them because they obey it. Psalm 119 is a sweet psalm of longing for God's word, delighting in God's word, running after God's word, pleading God for more grace to love God's word more. It's the cry of every new heart. And this isn't legalistic obedience 
We are not saved by obeying God's word. We can't earn that at all. We are saved by grace through faith alone. This is obedience born of love and trust in the heart of a believer. And we were given a new hope when we got saved. We're not living for this life anymore, but the one coming. In 1 Peter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The godly woman, as a believer, has a completely different relationship to God's word than the world around her, and it's evident in how she lives. She's not hostile to it. She's not indifferent to it. She delights in it. She's actively pursuing it, bringing her life under it. She obeys it. It is food and water for her soul. We talk about God's word a lot, reading God's word, meditating it in this class and in Wellspring. And listen, if we don't look different in this area, in our obedience, in our relationship to God's word, then I guarantee we're not going to look different in any of the other areas that we're going to talk about today. This is where it begins, being born again, having a new heart that loves God's word and loves to obey it. Does this describe your relationship to God's word? Is your life marked by obedience to it? Are you pursuing that? Do you know God's word well enough to obey it? Do you long for God's word? In chapter 2, verse um, 2, Peter writes, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Believers long for God's word. They, they pant after it like a deer for water. Believers stand in stark contrast to the world in that they are, are, are obedient to the truth from their hearts, and their lives are marked by a pursuit of holiness because God is holy. So the first way in which the godly woman looks different from the world around her is that her relationship to God's word is different. She obeys it. Secondly, how does a godly woman look different from the world around her? Her relationship to authority is different in that she submits to it. Her relationship to authority is different in that she submits to it. And it was so sweet as we were reviewing, when, as Melissa was reviewing the Wellspring Disciplines, I was just seeing so clearly that, that this, is, this is how um, even this passage that we're going to talk about today works. It starts in our hearts, being obedient to God's word, and it's going to move to our household relationships in our passage right now. And that, that's how it always works, and then outward from there. What is the world's relationship to the idea of authority? There might be outward obedience, fearing consequences, but inward rebellion. People might follow the rules, structure, but privately they'll slander it, they'll revile it. What is the world's relationship to the word submission? Being submissive to something, to authority. Isn't that a bad word in our culture today, especially when placed in the context of marriage, especially when placed in the context of a wife submitting to her husband? And what if I used the word obey instead? What does the world think of the idea of a woman obeying her husband? Not positive. And as we see, Sarah is described and held up as a holy woman who hoped in God because she obeyed her husband. That's a good thing in God's eyes. The world would tell us that submitting to our husbands makes us inferior, less than, foolish. She has to stand up for her rights and, and, and assert herself. But as believers, we can't think the world's thoughts about these things. We have to think God's thoughts. 
and God's thoughts on how a godly woman relates to authority, how she is to relate specifically to the idea of submitting to her husband. It's the opposite of the world's. Read with me the first two verses. We're going to be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Let's start in the first two verses. Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. This passage starts with the word likewise, which ties it to the passages that come before. The verses that we already read, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, even to Nero. Um, verse 18, servants be subject to your masters, even if they're unjust. So he's saying likewise, he's weaving that same thread of submission to authority, and he's continuing it here in the context of marriage. So the context of this passage is, is marriage. It's wives, specifically believing wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. But listen, those of you in this room who are not married, can't stop listening here because if you're single or if you're widowed, you need to hear what Peter says in this passage. He is telling us how godly women are to look different from the world around them. Yes, in marriage, but also in how we dress and how we conduct ourselves, how our hearts should look. This lesson has far more to do with what being a woman pleasing to the Lord looks like single or married than whatever station of life you currently find yourself in. I am not married. I needed to hear these things when I was preparing this lesson, and I need to hear these things again this morning. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. The world would scoff at this verse. They have um, no interest in submitting to a man as their husband because they have no interest in submitting their lives to God. Again, it goes back to that first point of being obedient to God's word. Women, unbelieving women, want to be their own authority. They don't want to submit to anyone except those they deem worthy of it. But the godly woman is different because she's abandoned her own authority. She's seen the darkness that it has only ever led her to. And she knows she's been called out of that darkness into God's marvelous light. She has wholly and without exception submitted her life to God. She has become obedient to his truth from her heart and submitting to him, she submits to every other God-appointed authority in her life, not because it's moral or righteous, but because God is, and it is his authority that we are ultimately entrusting ourselves to. In Romans 13, 1, you don't have to turn there, but it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. This verb, to be subject, it's, it's the Greek word uh, hupotasso. It comes from two words, actually, one of which, which means under, and the other which means to designate or to appoint. It's arranging in a deliberate fixed order. One commentator says that this is submission that involves recognition of an ordered structure. Our God is not a God of confusion or chaos. He's a God of order, and submission is not about inferiority or inequality. It is about honoring God by submitting to the order that he has designed in government or in marriage. God's design for marriage is not about anarchy, but order. And to that end, long ago in Genesis 2, before the fall, before there was even sin, he designed the man to be the head of the relationship and the woman to be his helper. There are specific God-honoring roles built into the institution of marriage, and that's how it functions best. 
It's actually a beautiful picture of Christ and the church with Christ as being the head of the church and giving himself up for her and the church submitting to that kind of leadership. And it's what Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 tell us. So in the same way that submitting to Nero did not make a man inferior to him or less than him as a person, so also a wife submitting to her husband makes her no such thing. When children submit to their parents or employees submit to their boss, it's clear that those things are not about inequality or inferiority. They're about order. And Jesus is our greatest example of this. Perfectly equal with God, his father, he wholeheartedly, as we said, submitted his will and his life under that authority. John 6, 38 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And as, he, as, as we said earlier, he submitted himself then to every other earthly authority. Jesus came as our best example of what pleasing the Father looks like, living a perfectly holy life under the authority that God appointed, while entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And as a quick note, it doesn't mean, it says to your own husbands. It doesn't mean every woman submitting to every man. It means every wife submitting to her own husband. And it says this, so that even if some do not obey the word, and that phrase, as we said earlier, is how Peter describes unbelievers. So this is saying, a wife, even if a wife is married to an unbeliever. And look what he says. The whole thing together, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So those of you with godly husbands in this room would likely rejoice at hearing this command. Having been married to a godly man for over a decade, it was more often than not a joy to be subject to that man, to submit to that man. But what about someone who is not married to a godly man? What about someone who is married to someone who is morally bankrupt, who might even hate God? Is that woman still called to be subject to her husband? The answer is yes in this passage. Just like there are no caveats on submitting to our government, Nero was the emperor, and Peter ended up being a martyr. He ended up being um, killed under Nero's leadership. So also, Peter has no qualification here in wives submitting to their husband. Your submission to your ungodly husband is not dependent upon him being a righteous man. Your obedience is not dependent upon his. And submission like that is it can be difficult. There's, there's no qualification on submitting to any of the God-appointed authority in our lives except for one thing, and, and that would be if our husbands or if our government asked us to engage in conduct that would not honor God, if they asked us to worship another God or not worship God at all, um, if they asked us to engage in sin in some way, we are called to disobey, to not submit. We submit first and most to God and then to the God-appointed authority in our lives. The godly woman's relationship to authority looks different from the world around her. She submits even in the face of slander or mistreatment, something that the world doesn't have a category for. And that is a testimony that there's something greater in her life than her husband or her government that she has submitted to. And unlike Nero, whom Christians had neither elected at the time nor desired to rule over them, um, unlike servants who had not chosen their masters, Submission within marriage is voluntary in that we get to choose who we marry. And there's a warning there for those of you who are not yet married about be careful who you marry because this is the command. You want to marry someone that you can submit to and be subject to. You want to marry a godly man. Peter gives a reason 
a result of this submission, a possible result of this submission. He says, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So that they may be won. That phrase is one word in the Greek. It's the same word used in the Matthew 18 passage on church discipline. If, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It means to win over, to gain, to avoid loss. What tool is God most pleased to win your unbelieving husband to? To win your unbelieving family members to? It's your godly conduct. That's what he says, by the, so that they might be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives. It doesn't say by the words of their wives. In fact, he pits the words directly against the conduct. He says without a word, not meaning that you shouldn't open your mouth. We were born again, as we read earlier, by the living and abiding word of God. We have to open our mouths. We have to give a reason for the hope that is in us. But the emphasis here is that your conduct, your life speaks louder than your words. The best tool for evangelism is not your words first and most, but it is your godly conduct. That there's a temptation to think that if we just keep talking to our unbelieving husbands, if we just keep talking to our unbelieving family members or friends or coworkers, if we just say it this way, then they'll believe. Then that heart of stone will be shattered. And somewhere along the way, it becomes nagging, becomes badgering, trusting in our own ability to do that, taping verses to his coffee mug, or leaving tracks on the seat of their car. But Peter says that, that these unbelieving husbands can be won just by watching your life. This kind of submission to authority, it's not gritted teeth or reluctant submission. That isn't how Jesus obeyed. It's voluntary submission that comes from the heart. What kind of conduct? can win unbelieving husbands to Christ. We'll look at verse 2. It says that they might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The word for respectful is the Greek word um, phobos, often translated fear. Can be, it's used often in relation to God, fearing God. Um, but it was used just a few verses earlier in the context of servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And that, that word is, is, can also be translated as respect, reverence, directed in that context between a servant to his master. And here it's directed towards the husband submitting to the husband with all reverence and respect. It springs from our fear of God. We're submitting our lives to God, and so we honor those he has placed in authority over us with all respect and reverence because we fear him. So and it, um, it's not passive-aggressive, outward, right, kind of respect. It is a genuine respect, again, from the heart. And the word pure is sometimes translated as holy, sacred, chaste. It's the same word we see in the Titus 2 passage on young women being pure. And it means to be without defilement or stain. Strong's Concordance says without spoilation, even down to the center of one's being. Not mixed with anything, with anything condemnable or guilt. The godly woman lives a life that stands in stark contrast to the world around her. She doesn't partake in the same TV shows or movies or music or podcasts. She doesn't laugh at the same jokes. She isn't entertained by what the world finds entertaining. She's different. She wants to be holy as God is holy. And remember the context here is still marriage. Submitting to your husband never means compromising your holiness. You may want to win your husband to Christ 
or your unbelieving family member to Christ so badly that you are tempted to compromise your moral integrity just to spend time with them. The pull towards compromise in this culture is not unique to marriage. It's, it's everywhere, and it's enormous. And in the deceitfulness of our hearts, we are tempted to listen to the lie that engaging in worldly conduct just a little bit will actually gain us a stronger hearing with them, with our unbelieving friends. That by becoming like them just a little bit, they will listen to us more. But that's an absolute lie. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it so well. Writing in 1959 London, I'm always struck by England in, in the 50s in the parallels to our culture today. He says this, because there's nothing new under the sun, but he says this, it has become blurred. The world has come into the church and the church has become worldly. The line is not as distinct as it was. There were times when the distinction was clear-cut, and those have always been the greatest eras in the history of the church. We know, however, the arguments that have been put forward. We've been told that we have to make the church attractive to the man outside, and the idea is to become as much like him as we can. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. It should not be our ambition to be as much like everybody else as we can, though we happen to be Christian, but rather to be as different from everybody who is not a Christian as we can possibly be. Our ambition should be to be like Christ. The more like him, the better, and the more like him we become, the more we shall be unlike everybody who is not a Christian. Godly women are called to be different from the world around them, indisputably. They're called to be holy as God is holy. Unbelievers are never won to Christ through moral compromise. It is respectful and pure conduct that wins unbelievers. The godly woman looks different from the world around her. She doesn't just submit to the authority in her life. She does so genuinely from her heart. She recoils from all that the world um, anything in the world that would stain the reputation of Christ's name. She prioritizes purity and respectful conduct. And this, more than her words, is what draws the eyes of the world around her, her husband, her roommates, her friends, to Christ. What does your relationship to the authority God has appointed in your life look like? To your husband, your parents, your teachers, your boss? Is it submission from the heart? Do you submit from the heart to your pastors, your employer? or your government, when something unjust or unfair is handed down by that authority, how do you respond? Do you slander it? Do you revile it? Do you threaten to quit or rebel or go around it? When you feel as though you aren't making traction with the unbelievers in your life, are you tempted to compromise your moral purity or your reverent behavior to make something happen? Do you trust that God's ways of drawing in are better than yours? Or do you run to your own tools, your own means, your own words, your own manipulations? Do you believe that your life speaks louder than your words? As I was thinking through this, I realized how much of a heart issue this is. It's easy for us um, to think of submission as an action, you know, like fold the laundry, cook dinner, um, or, hey, my husband wants to go to this place for dinner, so yes, I'll submit to that. Um, but really, it's, it's, it's a heart disposition in, in general. Do you submit to your husband with respect, not because he's righteous, not because he deserves it, but because he is the husband that God has given you, and you love the Lord, 
and you want to see him honored in every area of your life? Are you content in your marriage with where God has you under that authority because you trust him? And similarly, single women, do you submit to whatever God-appointed authority is in your life or children, your parents, not just outwardly doing the things that they tell you to do, but submitting to them in your heart, not because that authority is perfect or they make all the right decisions, but because they are the authority God has put in your life and you want to see them honored in every area. Do we submit to our government, not because it's righteous or just, but because we love the Lord and want to see him honored in every area of our life? Look, the believers back in Rome, this would have been an incredibly difficult command, submitting to the government like that? That would have been terrifying. There are consequences for that. But that is how Jesus came. That is what wins unbelievers to Christ. Doesn't it all come down to submission? What area of my life, of your life, will we not submit to the Lord? We have been born again. We actually can submit to the Lord now. But do we? That's what a lost world needs to see. Godly women who live differently from the world around them, who, who respond differently to mistreatment and unjust authority because they know their God is much bigger than their husband or their government. And that when he sent his son to save her, he didn't stand up for himself. He didn't assert his rights. He laid them down. That is how God wins lost souls. And she wants to be like that. The godly woman looks different from the world around her. Her relationship to God's word is different in that she obeys it. Her relationship to authority looks different in that she submits to it with purity, respect. And thirdly, how does a godly woman look different from the world around her? Her relationship to her adorning is different in that her priority is internal, not external. She wants to see herself as God sees her, not as the world sees her. We're going to read the next two verses in our passage. Still in the context of marriage, still addressing believing wives, married to unbelieving husbands, after discussing her conduct, he says this in verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight, is very precious. What is the unbelieving woman's relationship to her adorning? For a woman in this culture, for a, for a girl growing up in this culture, is, is hair and, and makeup and clothing a priority? Based on everything we see and hear, I would say yes. The word for adorning here, it's the Greek word um, cosmos, where we actually get our English word for cosmetics. And it can mean to decorate or to adorn. Uh, but it's far more translated, we also get our word cosmos from that. It's translated as world far more frequently. And the sense in both words is actually a sense of order. It's to order or arrange, an orderly arrangement, uh, an ordered system. And it, it came to be known for cosmetics in terms of how a woman orders her face. But the point is this, it's how a woman puts herself in order, her adorning. And the temptation for a woman to prioritize her outward appearance in this culture is, is massive. The cosmetics industry, as of 2021, was a $500 billion industry. I don't even really know how much money that is. I have to think about it a lot. And it's still growing. 
46% of that $500 billion, the biggest cosmetic product users, actually was not the United States. It, it, was, it was Oceania and Asia. 46%, that's a lot of money. But we were number two. The United States takes home 24% of that $500 billion. What products we use in our hair, the makeup we apply to our face, the moisturizer we use on our skin, the jewelry we put on, the clothes we wear, the focus on the external is everywhere. And the mediums and means to sell these things to us, if only in our minds, is, is endless. We've got beauty blogs, magazines, makeup and hair tutorials and commercials and store aisles, Instagram threads, Facebook ads, celebrity endorsements, reality TV shows. It's, it's overwhelming the, the means and by the, all of the different avenues that we are ingesting this and hearing about this. And this is nothing new, this tendency to put a priority on the external. In Isaiah 3, 16, in the middle of God's indictment against Judah, in Jerusalem, the Lord specifically indicts the women of Judah for their excessive attention to their outward appearance and, and all the adornments they had. I'm going to read this, this list, his indictment against them. And I just want you to notice like all of the different categories because they're all the same. <laughs> we, have, we have all of these things. <clears throat> he says in Isaiah 3.16, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings and the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. And he goes on to address belts, well-set hair, and beauty. He addresses each of the categories in 1 Peter 3, hair, jewelry, clothes. And I have to say, there's nothing wrong with these items of, of adornment themselves. The problem is not bracelets or nose rings. I don't know if that was the best one to pull out there, but <clears throat> handbags. Um, the problem is where the Lord begins his indictment in that passage it's because the daughters of Zion are haughty. They're, they're proud. That's the motive behind why they adorn themselves that way. They want to be seen. They want to be admired. They want to draw the eyes of the watching world to themselves. But the godly woman is totally different in her relationship to her adorning. Listen, godly women are not interested in drawing the eyes of the world around them to themselves. We are not interested in a lost and dying world seeing us admiring us because we know that what a lost and dying world desperately needs to see is God, to admire him. Melissa brought up that L'Oreal ad, because you're worth it. And the truth is, is that we're not. We're not, but God is, and we know that. The godly woman looks totally different in this area. And remember the context here is still marriage to an ungodly husband and the temptation in this context and probably why Peter says this, is, is that there's a temptation for a believing wife to try to win her husband through her appearance, through how beautiful she appears on the outside by losing weight or having better hair or newer clothes. But God says that it doesn't work like that. That's not how they're one. It's through godly conduct. And isn't that a relief in some ways when we think about trying to win the unbelievers in our lives? It's not up to us to use the perfect words or to wear the perfect outfit to, to draw them to ourselves. It's God's work using God's means. 
And that is us living a holy, submissive life, obedient to his word before them, giving evidence and testimony to our profession of faith. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, or the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. So what Peter is not saying here is just not to wear braids. Or, or jewelry or clothes. If he were saying that literally in the Greek the way that it's worded, he'd be prohibiting all clothing all the time. That's not what he's saying. And again, there's nothing wrong or sinful about wearing jewelry or getting your hair done or putting makeup on or wearing nice clothes. And in fact, there's a threat here in not caring enough about our appearance that I think is worth just a minute of our time because there, there are two ends of the spectrum. And there seems to be in our culture this increasing trend toward uber-casualness Uh, alongside of the ever-present trend of immodesty. So I'm going to, let's flip over to 1 Timothy 2 really quickly, just to see kind of a mirror passage to this one. Uh, This one's written by Paul, and he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 9. He's he's giving instructions for how the church is to be ordered, and he he addresses women in, in verse 9. 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 9, he says that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. And here we get to see the the positive side of the spectrum, how we should adorn ourselves as godly women. Godly women do take care with their appearance. They have to. I don't know if you've ever tried to buy clothes for for your teenage girl recently. I have. She's going to be in this class on Saturday, and she'll be embarrassed when I say this, but she's not here right now. It takes work to find something respectable for your daughter to wear. It takes many hours and multiple stores to find something modest. And I find myself asking questions like, well, how many rips in a jean or or, or a shirt is respectable? I shouldn't have to be asking those questions. Getting myself dressed or my daughter's dressed for church takes self-control, you know? And often multiple tries, like, go back in, we're not wearing that, you know? Before we get out the door, it takes work and thought, but it's worth it. I'm trying to teach my daughter about what a godly woman looks like in a worldly culture. That's hard. She looks different. She looks different. She has to. We're trying to teach her to value more what is beautiful in God's sight than what is beautiful in the world's sight. I'm trying to speak louder than all those ads and posts and her friends at school. And not just her, but obviously preaching to my own heart. And the question we need to be asking how we dress and how our daughters dress or is, it, is not, the question we need to be asking is not, how like the world can we dress and still not be the world? It's the wrong question. But how can we dress in such a way as to reflect the holiness of God in respectability, in modesty, in self-control? Godly women have to look different from the world around them. So yes, godly women have to care about their appearance, their outward appearance. Being slovenly dressed or unkempt, not showering or brushing your hair, dressing super lazily, it probably doesn't best reflect a God of order. In fact, not caring at all how you dress or purposefully dressing carelessly will, in its own way, draw attention to yourself rather than God, again, for wrong reasons. 
that's the more positive side of how godly women ought to adorn themselves outwardly. But let's flip back to our passage in 1 Peter 3. While not caring enough about our appearance is, is a threat, by far, I think in this culture, the temptation is going to fall on the other end of that spectrum, caring too much about our appearance, spending too much time, too much money on that. It says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or, and the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. He says here that the priority for the godly woman is not her external appearance. It's her internal. It's what's going on inside. Her priority has to be not on what other people can see, but on what God sees. To prioritize what he prioritizes. God sees our heart. And this is his priority because as we know here in Wellspring, as we just talked about a minute ago, it's the wellspring of life. It is from the well of our hearts that everything else in our life flows. The heart, the hidden person of the heart, that's the seat of all of our thoughts and affections, our emotions and beliefs. It's, it's who we are really on the inside. It's, it's the inner man. And listen, our hair is going to fade away and, and, our, and our skin is going to wrinkle and these things are going to fade externally, but our souls will last forever one way or another. And this adjective here about how we are to adorn our hearts is so helpful. It says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That word imperishable, it's helpful because it stands in contrast to all the other things about us that are going to fade, namely our external appearance. The, the word imperishable it means incorruptible, immortal, impervious to corruption and death. And my translation, I'm using the ESV today, it says beauty. The word beauty is not in the text. There, there's actually not a word in the text. The idea there is there, there's an imperishable something, right? We want to adorn our heart with the imperishable quality, I think is how the NASB phrases it. The imperishable quality of a, of a gentle and quiet spirit. The godly woman adorns her inner person because it's going to last forever. It's just like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, that though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And we are to adorn that hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of, of what? Of a, of a gentle and quiet spirit. The word gentle does not actually mean gentle as in touch, but it's translated more accurately as humble, considerate, meek. Melissa was just talking all about this word. This is what this word means. This is the same word that Matthew uses in uh, chapter 5, verse 5 in the Beatitudes. Um, this is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And it can be translated as not, it's, it, the idea is not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. And that, that view, that meekness, flows from a right view of ourselves before God. Just like Melissa was talking about. We know how undeserving we were of God's mercy. We know the cost that had to be paid to forgive our sin. How could we possibly think we deserved anything? have any rights. What is the difference between us and an unbeliever? There's no difference. It's just God's mercy. Martin Lloyd-Jones again says of meekness that the meek man or woman is not proud of himself. He does not in any sense glory in himself. He feels that there is nothing in himself of which he can boast. To be meek, in other words, means that you have finished with yourself altogether and you come to see that you have no rights or deserts at all. The man who is truly meek 
is the one who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. Is this you? I I don't know about you, but this is just not me. This is not my default. My default is not to be amazed that people treat me so kindly (laughs) or that God treats me so kindly. I have to come to the word of God and remember Remember who I used to be. Remember what I've been saved from. Remember who I am to see myself rightly before God and before people. The godly woman adorns her heart with the imperishable quality of a meek spirit and also a quiet, a gentle and a quiet spirit. The word quiet for the word quiet here, it means quiet. (laughs) Tranquil. When we are fully trusting a good God, a sovereign God, there is a quietness, the opposite of flailing your arms or shaking your fist or hanging your head. Mm-hmm. See, we can submit to unjust authority because we trust God, because we trust that he's sovereign and he is good, that he's appointed that authority and is still in control of it. We don't need to be vindicated here because we know that the Lord has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, we leave that to him. We don't need to get, get all of our rights and desserts now. We don't need to have the treasures of this life, because we know that there is a better one coming. And often, the times where we are trusting God the most is when we're not talking. It's when we're not complaining, or worrying, or wondering, or making demands. But when we're quiet, and we're trusting, when we're meek, The godly woman adorns her heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. It's not a popular idea to be a meek and quiet woman in this culture. I'm just trying to think of the last time I saw a movie in which the heroine was meek and quiet. It's just not a popular idea. Godly women are different from the world. This is valuable in God's eyes. In fact, this is precious. This, in God's sight, is very precious. Jesus was both of these things. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he said, Take my yoke upon, me, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, it's that same word, and gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And he was quiet. Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And earlier we read that, he, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus had the imperishable quality of a, of, a, of a gentle and quiet spirit. And we've been called to follow in his steps. This is what a godly woman prioritizes when it comes to her adorning. It's her heart, adorning her heart with these things. And it's precious in God's sight. That word precious is costly. And it's so kind because, listen, godly woman who is married to an ungodly man, you are in God's sight. He sees you. And by pursuing these things, pursuing a gentle and quiet spirit, pursuing being submissive to your husband, it's precious. You get to please the Lord. It's just an opportunity to please the Lord every day. The world scoffs at these things, calls them worthless. I think the value of being a meek, quiet, modest, submissive woman has never been lower, but in God's sight, these things are precious, very precious. What is your relationship to your adorning this morning? What is your priority? Is it internal where God sees, or is it external where the world sees, in terms of where you spend your money, spend your time? Is it in pursuit of being 
beautiful as the world is beautiful or being holy as the world as the Lord is holy. And these two things are are opposed to each other. You can't prioritize both of these things. One or the other has to take precedence. And the godly woman looks different. Her relationship to her, to her outward appearance and her adorning and what she prioritizes is different than the world around her. And that makes her like a salmon, right? Is that where you guys were going with the picture? <laughs> Did you think salmon? She's like a salmon. They swim upstream and all the other fish are like, well, you're crazy. Why are you going upstream? She's like, I've got to lay my eggs there. The analogy, I'm not going to go into it further, but the, the point is, is that she's going in the opposite direction of the current and of all the other fish because she knows where her home stream is. She's got to get there. Her goal is completely different. The godly woman, her goal is completely different. It's in the opposite direction of the world. Look, the world is headed, running, fleeing, swimming to destruction, to hell. And the godly woman has, has no interest in moving that direction anymore. Her priorities have changed. She wants to get home. She's running a completely different race. She's a salmon, friends. Scott Maxwell used that a long time ago. It's always been helpful for me. Is your goal when you're getting dressed in the morning to adorn first your heart with a gentle and quiet spirit? By the way, that only happens by spending time with the Lord. That only happens by reading this book. That's why we talk about it so much. Because like I said earlier, my default is not to wake up wanting these things naturally because we're in a mixed condition here. We have to be reading these things and remembering what we've been saved from, what we've been saved to. We have to remember that we're salmon, as it were. How can we be meek if we're not reminding ourselves of what Christ has done on the cross for us, the cost that was paid, and the hope that we have? How can we be quiet if we're not reminding ourselves daily of God's promises of sovereignty and goodness, purpose, plan, are you pursuing the things that are precious in the world's sight? Or are you pursuing the things that are precious in God's sight? Having become obedient to God's word from her heart, the godly woman submits to authority with respect, purity. She prioritizes the adorning of her heart with a gentle and quiet spirit. She looks radically different from the world around her in these areas. And lastly, let's quickly look at one helpful example of a godly woman that Peter gives us in our passage. Verses 5 and 6 say this, and it's a continuation. It begins with a 4, so we're going to back up and read 3 and 4. He talks about not letting your adjoining be external, but let your adjoining be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. He gives the example of Sarah here. This is, of course, Sarah from the book of Genesis who is married to the patriarch Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Sarah is one of the only women in scripture who we actually know was beautiful externally, and it caused a lot of difficulties with her and Abraham. But in this passage, it tells us that Sarah's priority when it came to how she adorned herself, her, herself was inward. It was her heart. It says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. This, and then he gives Sarah as the example. 
she tells us that she was a holy woman. She prioritized holiness. It tells us that, that she hoped in God. Her hope wasn't in Abraham or her or having children. Eventually, wasn't there. Her hope was in God alone. And this verb for used to adorn themselves, um, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, it's in the imperfect. It's this ongoing process. Sarah was continually adorning herself this way, and, and that, that's what it would be for all of us an ongoing process of adorning ourselves like that on a daily basis, constantly striving for that. And there's outward evidence given for this inward hope for her. Do you see it? It says, for this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. And it gives a how we know it. How do we know? What was the outward evidence? By submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. See, Sarah's submission to Abraham was evidence of her inward hope. And it says calling him Lord, that, that's, that's a, that was a term of respect in Sarah's day. It would have been Lord with a lowercase l. And it says she obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. The only reference to Sarah actually calling Abraham Lord is in Genesis 18, 12. And she says it actually almost in passing. But it's indicative that that was the posture of her heart toward her husband. She obeyed him. Um, she submitted to him. That was the posture of her life. And again, Sarah was able to submit. I don't know if you know this story. Abraham was a sinner. But Sarah was able to submit to him because, again, her hope was in God alone. Her faith was in God alone. Hebrews 11 talks about Sarah, and it actually calls her out specifically, which I just always find so sweet. It, it's, it's, Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith, as it's called sometimes, and um, it does reference Abraham by faith. He gave up Isaac, or he sacrificed Isaac, but it also references Sarah specifically. And it says about Sarah in verse 11 of chapter 11 in Hebrews, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah's faith and her hope were in God alone. The last part of verse 6 says this, And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The context for Sarah is that she, she would have had many things to be afraid of. She was a nomad. She was following Abraham. Um, she was taken into the clutches of Gentile kings more than once. And it says that, that her example before us is that she didn't fear what was frightening because her hope was in God. And for us, and specifically in this context, for a, a godly woman to wholly submit to an ungodly man, that can be scary. And for us as believing women to submit to an unjust government, that can be scary. Submitting to unjust authority, there is a temptation to fear frightening things. There's an, an acknowledgement here that there are frightening things, but we're not called to fear them because we hope in a God who is bigger than those authorities, who's in control of those authorities. Sarah was a holy woman who hoped in God, and that hope was seen in her relationship to her husband, and it was seen in her gentle and quiet spirit. Is your hope evidenced in your life like this? When people see into your life, do they see you submitting to your husband if you're married or submitting to the other God-appointed authority in your life if you're not? 1 Peter 3.15 says that we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us and yet to do it with gentleness and respect. Are we living in such a way that people have questions to ask us about where our hope is? Are the differences clear enough? Or, or like that quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, has that line become blurred? If your hope is in God, 
your life will look radically different from the world around you because you'll be striving after something completely different. Do you see the wellspring disciplines in this passage? It's just sweet. See, the godly woman prioritizes first the wellspring of her heart with a gentle and quiet spirit, which then bubbles up into her household relationship with her husband and reverent and respectful submission before spilling over into the lives of those around her as her best tool of evangelism. I was thinking about the Wellspring purpose as we were reading it. Can I borrow your book? And it says that the purpose of this is, is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And this is what this passage is all about, that we shepherd our hearts and that that actually comes out of us in living a gospel-transformed life. Godly women look different from the world. It's not just like parallel lines or like just a little bit different. It's, it's opposite directions. Godly women, our, our relationship to God's word is different. We obey it. Our relationship to authority is different. We submit to it. And we don't just submit to it. Like we don't slander it. We don't revile it. We, we obey it from our heart. And our relationship to how we adorn ourselves is different. We strive to see ourselves not as the world sees us, but as God sees us. Our lives are marked by holiness, respect, purity. And a woman who lives her life in this way cannot help but have questions asked her or, or be maligned. <laughs> the hope of this lesson is that we would be godly women who adorn ourselves with things that are precious in God's sight, even if they are despised in the world's that we would be godly women who live our lives in such a way as to draw the eyes of a watching world, not to ourselves, but to him, because we're not worth it, but he is. May we be women who prioritize the hidden person of our hearts more than anything external about us. Let's pray. Father, we're just thankful for another day to live and breathe and get to be here and hear the teaching of your word this morning. Oh Lord, you are worthy. You are good, and you are sovereign, and you are powerful and mighty. And yet, Lord, the way that you choose to save sinners, it's humble and it's meek. It is a laying down of yourself, not an asserting of yourself. And that is contrary to our culture. It's contrary to our very own nature. But, oh, Lord, I just pray for my own heart and, and, and the hearts of, of these ladies in this room that we would want to run after these things, that we would want to look like Christ, that we would want to walk out of this room and be obedient to the truth from our hearts, that we would want to lay our lives down, lay our rights down, that we would want to submit to authority, not because it's, it's worth it, Lord, but because you are, that others would see something different about us and that we would have gentle and quiet spirits trusting you as we do those things. Lord, would you just help us where we still have unbelief and weakness of faith in our lives? Would you transform our lives and so that we would have conduct that prompts questions and even surprise from the people around us and that we would be an aroma of something different, that when people look at us, they see something different and that, and that that difference is you, Lord, that they would see your character reflected in our lives, in our holy conduct. 
we are so grateful, Lord, that we can even obey any of these things because we have been saved, because we have new hearts through Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.